This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We start with the breaking news today that Health Canada has approved now the Pfizer vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. Have a listen to Dr. Teresa Tam here, Canada's medical health officer on that. Today, a new lower dose pediatric formulation of the Cominati COVID-19 vaccine by Pfizer-BioNTech is being authorized by Health Canada as Canada's first COVID-19 vaccine for use in children aged 5 to 11 years. And NACI is recommending that a complete two-dose series may be offered to children in the, this age group who do not have contraindications to the vaccine. Okay, the COVID-19 vaccine is approved for children in Canada. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jason Tetro, microbiologist, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, which I highly recommend to you. And it's always great to have him on here. Jason, thanks for coming on again today. Hey, it's great to be joining you. Jason, your response, first of all, your reaction to the news that the vaccine for kids has been approved in Canada. I mean, it was just a matter of time. Uh, when we saw what was going on with the FDA and we saw all the data that Pfizer provided to us, and it was actually, you know, very good data, um, we knew that probably within three to four weeks after the uh, submission, October 18th, there was going to be an approval. So this is great. It, it's right on time. And uh, it means that, you know, we're really going to reduce the chances for some problems in our children as we head towards Christmas and, of course, the new year. Okay, so we're told that there will be enough vaccine for all the kids in this age group in Canada. Mm -hmm. When can parents out there expect to be offered this vaccine for their children? Yeah, so right now, every uh, district or province municipality is figuring things out. However, uh, one of the places that I know well, which is Ottawa, is essentially going to be doing community clinics first, and then it's going to go into other clinics, and then eventually it's going to go into pharmacies. Uh, I don't think it's going to go into schools like we have seen with other types of uh, vaccine uh, campaigns. And the reason for that just simply is that uh, there's not enough of it to go around. So we want to be absolutely sure that, you know, we have people who are registering, they're getting in line, they're getting it, and then they're marked in. But more importantly, it also marks them so that they can get their second shot eight weeks later. Okay, does this vaccine, is it the same as the, the vaccine that's offered to adults, or is it a, is it a smaller dose? Yeah, it's, so everything is the same except for the actual uh, mRNA and nanoparticle. Instead of 30 micrograms, which is what you see in uh, the current one that's approved, purple cap, you're going to have 10 micrograms. So one third of the dose of the mRNA, and that's going to be in an orange cap. So when you actually watch them putting it into the needle, you can even look at the color of the cap and go, hey, I know what that is. Okay, and will it be the same as for adults, like a, a two-dose regimen? Yeah. So uh, the, the, the clinical trial showed three weeks in terms of a f uh, interval between first and second. Uh, here in Canada, based on what we've seen from the uh, larger dose, we're going to go to at least eight weeks based on the recommendations from NACI. Okay. And what about a third booster dose? Like we're already seeing the third dose rolled mm -hmm. out for vulnerable adults in, in British Columbia, and we expect a lot of people to get a third dose here in the months ahead. Will that be the same for kids too? Will they get a third dose later? <laughs> 
Um, at this point, we don't really know because we haven't had the amount of time to look and whether, see whether or not there's waning immunity. Um, because children's immune systems are dramatically different from those of adults, we may actually see longer lasting immunity well past nine months into a year or something like that. We may have to, uh, we may not need that six month booster like we're seeing in adults at the moment. And remember, the, the data that just came out, I think it was yesterday or the day before, is showing that maybe boosters aren't really all that necessary for absolutely everybody. Uh, but mainly only those who have issues with their secondary or what we call cellular immune responses. Speaking of microbiologist Jason Tetro about the breaking news today, Canada has approved that COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. The Pfizer vaccine now approved for use in Canada. What if you've got a kid who's under underage, under age 5, uh, they, and they can't get the vaccine? Would they still be protected or, or get some protection if, you know, the rest of their family's vaccinated? Yeah, and this is what we call ring vaccination. So what you do is you essentially have an individual who cannot receive the vaccine, so you vaccinate the people all around them. Normally, this comes in the form of vaccines for, say, elderly individuals who simply cannot get the vaccine. Uh, but it also works for the younger individuals as well. So if you have anyone who is under the age of five who happens to be in your household or you know within your regular get-together community, the bubble, if you will, then absolutely, you want to get yourself vaccinated so that you're protected that individual okay we've had a very high vaccination rate typically overall in the country which is good but we ha also have seen some opinion polls that suggest that maybe people are a little more nervous about the vac giving the vaccine to their kids mm -hmm. what can you say about that for people who are wondering whether their children is the vaccine safe for their kids what can you say about that yeah, absolutely. So when you look at the data that came out from Pfizer uh, that was used for the FDA approval as well as here in Canada, what you see is that um, there's going to be a little bit more of a chance of an ouchie on the arm after the after the vaccine, but that's normal. Uh, but then afterwards, they recover pretty quickly, probably within, you know, one to three days, and then they're back to their usual selves. And that seems to be yeah. what we're seeing um, for the most part. And, um, you know, if you have any other concerns, then, well, apparently there was none of them. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about the news today that the Pfizer vaccine has been approved now for children aged 5 to 11, Health Canada making that official today. My guest is Jason Tetro, microbiologist, taking your calls on this now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Kezia in Victoria. Hi. Hi there. I'm curious about um, drug interactions between the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine. If I wanted to immunize my children with flu vaccine um, at, at the same time or close by the um, COVID vaccine, how long do I have to wait in between? Jason. That's a great question. Uh, 14 days. What we want to do is we want to make sure that the uh, vaccine for COVID-19 is provided um, in its own self at this point. Um, and then what you can do is after 14 days, you can go ahead with the regular vaccinations. That's essentially what was conveyed this morning. And uh, I, I agree with that. Okay, keep phoning me with your questions. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898. On your cell. Jason, we've talked in the past about some of the the rare reactions to the vaccine that has been reported. And this may be on the minds of some parents uh, as they face vaccinating their kids. Like mm -hmm. we've talked before about 
myocarditis, right, which is a heart inflammation that's been reported in some young people after getting COVID-19, the COVID-19 vaccine. What can you say about that or people have concerns about it? Yeah, so when you look at the data that's been coming out from uh, the adult version of the vaccine, uh, what you see is that it really is going across the age spectrum, and the median age, believe it or not, is 26. So it's not just kids. It's pretty much everybody. And that's most likely a, what we call a dose response because it's no longer age stratified. Uh, I know, geeky words. Uh, for children, because we're down to a third of the dose, the likelihood of having um, such a strong immune reaction is very low. And the immune system of a child is, as I said, very different. And so what happens is it's really focused on that humoral or antibody response than it is from the other responses. So I don't believe that there's going to be any major concern for something like a myocarditis because of that lower dose. But more importantly, when we look at the clinical trials that have come out, there were absolutely no signs of it. We also hear a lot of people talk about natural immunity if they've already had COVID-19 in the past and recovered, and if they've got those natural uh, antibodies in their, in their body. Mm-hmm. What about for kids? Like, let's say a kid has had COVID-19 already. Are, should they get the vaccine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, There was a really cool study that was done in the U.S., and what it showed was that if you had been infected, your risk of being reinfected was anywhere from nine times down to about two times higher than if you were vaccinated. And the reason the two to nine times was based on the actual lineage of the virus. Okay, so you get better protection from the vaccine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Mary calling from New West. Hi, Mary. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Sure. What would you like to say? My question is, I'm an 89-year-old. I've just received my flu vaccine yesterday, slated for the booster on Saturday. Is that too close? Hmm. Um... Because you are 89 years of age, um, I would make sure that you contact your um, doctor and to ask, because unfortunately, I can't tell you what your immune system is like. Um, And so as a result, it's very difficult to determine whether or not there might be um, sort of what we sort of competition knocking out uh, of the immune responses as a result of it being too close. Um, The 14 days is something that I would like to see. But again, that's not something I can really advise to you. This is something that you really should just call your doctor and ask. Okay, I think it's a really good question for you to be asking, though, Mary, and thank you for your call. And yes, certainly uh, encourage you to check with your own doctor on that one for sure. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Ed in South Surrey. Hi, Ed. Uh, Yes, uh, I just had an injection of Intivio. How soon after can I have my flu shot? Probably about three weeks. Uh, That's what I would suggest. But again, this is something that you really should be talking with your doctor about because um, they have the the algorithms, the flow charts, whatever you want to call it, uh, to be able to show you um, how long you're going to go before you're able to take another dose. Yeah, he's okay. He's done two weeks, but I guess so. Okay. Thank yeah. You okay. Two. Yeah. I, uh, two weeks is good. Yeah. I, I mean, again, that that's what they're recommending. That's great. Um, I'm one of those three weekers, just because I know that then um, you've re- you've gone past a certain phase in your immune system development. But um, yeah, that's cool too. 
Ed, thank you very much for the call. When you take a look around the world, Jason, as you've uh, been covering this pandemic now for, for many months, uh, what is your what is your impression of where we're at right now uh, in terms of the where we're at in, the, in this pandemic? Like I was reading this morning about the uh, the soaring case numbers in places like Austria and yeah. Germany, and Austria actually bringing saying they're bringing in mandatory vaccination, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts yes. on what's going on there, especially in Europe? Well, the reality is that even though we call it one COVID-19 pandemic, it's actually been two pandemics. Uh, we had the one with the original lineage and alpha, beta, gamma. And then Delta came around and Delta actually spread more like a common cold than it did a SARS virus, even though it's still as dangerous as a SARS. And that in itself has created its own sort of pandemic. And as a result of that, we're still figuring out how to deal with that. And what we're learning is that what used to be 40% full vaccination to be able to eliminate, which is what we were seeing um, in the early part of this year, now we're looking at 85 to 90% of everybody vaccinated, not eligible, everybody vaccinated before we might be able to eliminate this. And when you don't have that, you've still got millions and millions of people who are unvaccinated. And that's where you're seeing the majority of these. Uh, And then you get the breakthroughs that are happening on top of that. It just turns into a nightmare. Squeeze in one more call. Rory and Langley. Rory, please go quickly. Go ahead. Sure. Can you please clarify what you mean when you say, can can you clarify how natural immunity is not as good as vaccination immunity. Okay, you got 30, you got 30 yeah, seconds to explain that, Jason. Because the vaccine is what we call a full-length um, uh, spike protein. And what it does is it actually looks like the, 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 the protein on the virus, whereas if your natural immunity only looks at what the protein looks like from your cells, and it can evade what it looks like in your cells, it can't evade what it looks like on the virus. Jason, thank you for coming on today. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about BC's devastated highways, bridges, and rail lines now. The massive effort that now lies before this province to rebuild all of this broken infrastructure. The scale of the damage here is unprecedented. Highway 1 is underwater. The Coquihalla lies in pieces, collapsed and broken in several locations. Several other highways are also damaged and blocked by landslides. How long will it take to repair and rebuild? What an awesome panel we've assembled for you on this. We've got two of BC's top construction experts for you. Joe Robol is the president of JPW Road and Bridge. Joe, thanks for coming on this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You bet. Also on the line is Kelly Scott. Kelly is the president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Kelly, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Pleased to be here. I'm pleased. I'm pleased to have both you guys here, Kelly. Let me go to you first. Did, did you ever conceive in, in your wildest dreams that a highway like the Coquihalla could just crack into pieces like that? Like the the pictures that we've seen of this highway just broken in two in so many different places. I mean, I remember. I remember when this highway was built. It was world class highway. It was built to withstand all, all the all the uh, the pressures in British Columbia, and yet there it is lying in ruin. What do you think of that when you see it? I don't think any of us foresaw this, and, and clearly the first thing you think about is the, the tragedy that's occurred to the families and those travelers that have been stuck out there. Uh, you know, this this highway was built 40 years ago and, and was, uh, world, as you say, world caliber at the time, best in class. Right. What we what we saw hit us here last weekend, uh, nobody foresaw, and, and not just on the coast, but all the other arteries heading into the lower mainland from the interior. 
Yeah, no, it's just it's just incredible. And Joe, what about what would you say? What do you think about the scale of the damage here? Well, I think uh, we've used the terms, uh, you know, it's unprecedented, um, as Kelly mentioned as well. Uh, yeah, it's huge. It's uh, This is much larger than anyone could have uh, sort of anticipated. Uh, but uh, but it's there. It's there in front of us. It's daunting. But uh, yeah. everybody, yeah, uh, is there the resolve to get it done? Yes. Yeah, it's, it certainly is lying before us uh, starkly. And uh, you guys will certainly be among those on the front line as, as we start to rebuild and recover from this so let me let's talk a little bit about what lies in front of us here and kelly i'm interested in your thoughts on let's start with the coquihalla like when you take a look at like how many different places that road that highway is broken what kind of challenge does that present especially when you've got limited a limited access routes like there's not it's not like there's sort of side roads you can get up to these places right uh, terrific question. It's, it, it is broken, and, and that will be the challenge. The first challenge is going to be getting access to those slide areas and assessing with the geotext what is the problem. And, and right. one thing about all of this work is, is worker safety is non-negotiable. It needs to be safe for anybody to go into those sites. And once they've established that, then, then the logistics uh, problem starts and how are you going to move a lot of that heavy equipment in. There are ways. We've seen a lot of uh, remote sites where they would have tear machines down and helicopter them in. Um, but again, that's a costly venture, but, but it can be done. Joe, when you take a look at the task that lies in front of us here for repairing this infrastructure, like what kind of a... Let's talk about the keep talking about the Coquihalla. Like, what kind of equipment would need to be brought in there? Let's say to just even just start clearing up, cleaning up the debris. Like, what kind of heavy equipment needs to be moved in there to do that? Well, uh, from what I've seen, uh, it'll require all kinds of equipment. So you'll have the uh, you know large uh, caterpillar crawler tractors. You'll have the rock trucks. You'll have scrapers. You'll have excavators. Uh, so I think, as Kelly mentioned, the first thing is the assessment, determining what it is and uh, what what you need to do to, uh, you know, restore, uh, repair, restore access, which which we first, and then replace what's been taken. Right. And then as we talked about, Kelly, we talked about the the challenges for access here. You mentioned that the possibility of moving stuff in there by helicopter, like, is it possible to sort of take heavy equipment and move it in there by a chopper? It's been done up north, Mike, and a lot of those remote mine sites, that's how they go and do it. And they've been doing that for the last 20, 30 years. So it's, it's not new technology. But whether this is the type of equipment you're going to need for, for this job, we're not sure of. Uh, what we do know, though, is uh, the road builder community has come together and provided a list of equipment that is available when uh, the government wants to move forward on these projects. So uh, they've come uh, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, the list is quite substantial. There's a lot of heavy equipment available, um, but as we said earlier, we have to assess. And then, as Joe has said, are we going to rebuild or, or redesign as we go forward? Yeah, right. Speaking of Joe Roble, JB, JPW Road and Bridge, Kelly Scott is the president of the BC Road Builders. Yeah, Joe, when we talk about repairing this stuff, I mean, is it possible to repair these highways, or do you have to, or do we do, do we have to start over here? I mean, we're looking at a new reality of these type of extreme weather events perhaps happening again. So do we need to do a, a redesign in how we build this infrastructure? I think the answer is certainly yes. But I think first and foremost, again, it's, as Kelly mentioned, it's safety. Um, yeah. The next thing will be restoring the access um, and determining, you know, what, 
what you need to do when you rebuild. Um, are you going to, you know, bring in some uh, climate change resilience to that? But, but first and foremost, it's a, it's a matter of just attacking the the problem. And and like most situations, um, you know, how do you start? Well, you you just you break it down to its its elements, and then you just start going at it one after another. Yeah, and we've heard that the transportation minister told me here on the show yesterday that it could be months just to do temporary repairs, never mind permanent repairs. And we've heard that the province is is looking around for Bailey bridges. Kelly, what are what is that? What is ba- what are Bailey bridges? It's a temporary bridge design or uh, structure that you can use to go over uh, the creeks that you've got here. Uh, used extensively throughout North America, and the ministry reached out to one of our contractor members uh, on Monday who are pro- sourcing North America right now for these Bailey bridges. You'll see them a lot in the southeast United States that are being used, but usually it's an emergency use. And, and But one thing we need to keep focus on, though, Mike, is it, the Coke is one, but we still have the Canyon and number three arteries available to bring uh, product uh, down from the interior into the lower mainland. Right. Uh, and, and those, to me, are critical as well, as well as 99 uh, through the Littlewet uh, tragic slide up that way. So uh, we do have other options available and not just the Coke. Yeah, for sure. And we have seen some efforts here to punch some holes through this debris and get some get some uh, critical critical uh, trucks moving. We're told that the Hope Princeton Highway could maybe reopen this weekend for single lane emergency traffic, which is which is good news. Uh, I mean, you guys have seen this kind of stuff before. Like, I'm just curious, Joe, like this is a province where we've had landslides before. It's not like landslides or something we haven't experienced before. We've seen roads damaged by landslides, but do you think this is something different or something new? Like, is this a, just a brand new type of slide threat that we're seeing now going forward? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm a, I'm a geotechnical engineer. I've, I started in the highway maintenance business uh, or the highways industry in 1974 as a university summer student, and I've been involved uh, since that time in the last 30 years as a road bridge maintenance contractor uh, you know there are there's all different types of modes of failure and slides and washouts uh, i don't think i've seen anything that's new in any of this the only thing different in this particular one is the timing and the scope and the size of it the fact that we've had so many hit all at the same time but right. again it's so there's it's nothing new and as an engineering situation you look at the site you assess it you determine what you need to make it safe. Uh, you, you then look at what's the mode of failure, um, what, what's causing that particular situation or that particular site to, uh, to fail, and then you look to see what you can do to safely um, mitigate that, that, uh, that effort or that uh, mode of failure. And once you've got that in place, then you start rebuilding. And, and Kelly, what, what would you say about the, uh, the challenge of the, the winter months now approaching and winter conditions will, will be here soon? And how does that complicate the repair efforts? Uh, oh, Mike, it's, it's, it's uh, right in front of us. I mean, you, you, all of us have drove the Coquihalla in the winter, and here we are just starting the snow season. So, so let alone the, the ground is saturated, we're not too sure if it's safe to go in there. Now we're going to be faced with feet or meters of snow coming at us. Uh, the assessment, this whole, this will delay the whole process just because of safety and getting in there and trying to assess what's going on. 
Um, but, uh, but again, we do have the uh, Hope Princeton. We do have the number one as, as options for us right. to allow us to keep the traffic flowing while focusing on some of the major rebuild that will have to occur on the Coke. All right, talking to two of BC's top highway construction experts, Joe Robel, JPW Road and Bridge, Kelly Scott from the BC Road Builders. Lots of calls for them. Jack and Burnaby. Hi, Jack. Hi, Michael, and uh, and hi, your guest. Hey, I'm a professional engineer myself, but in a different discipline. My question is, is it about time to modify or upgrade the specifications for, uh, for highway construction, especially in light of the critical infrastructure needed within the BC to move the goods from point A to point B? Kelly, do you have any thoughts on that? Um. I didn't quite pick up the question. Was to upgrade this spec on the, Up, the upgrade, structure? Do you have to upgrade the qualifications of uh, people who are working on these projects? Uh, well, I don't think we have to upgrade the qualifications of people working on the projects. I think they're 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 world caliber. Uh, a lot of the workers that we bring in, a lot of our companies work on the international scene, whether it be bridges or roads and that. So it's not a matter of upgrading the quality of our workers, uh, our view. I think maybe your specification of highways may be looked at. Again, Coquihalla was built 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, the world has changed, uh, uh, as will the specs. But right. we do know this ministry is out looking at best practices around the world. We're not the only jurisdiction going through this. Go to Europe. A lot of technology is being looked at, and, and they are looking at bringing that over here. Let's go to Dave on the line and Chase. Hey, Mike. I just Hi. wanted to say about the about the Hope Princeton being open. It's a good quick fix, but we're going to need to get the canyon open there too, just simply because I've driven both these roads thousands of times, and the Hope Princeton is not going to be geared for the amount of traffic that's going to be uh, trying to get over that road, and especially coming into holiday season with people wanting to travel to the Okanagan and the interior. That whole prince in there, you know, you've got the whipsaw, you've got, there's, I know they've done some straightening there, but uh, they're going to have to work on getting the canyon and up there where Tank Hill and that, they don't have the snow there that they do on the coke. So just a suggestion, and I know Kelly had mentioned it there, and I think it's a great idea, but we've got to get the canyon going too. Okay, uh, Joe Robo, can you comment on that? Sure. Rest assured, the ministry is looking at all fronts. Uh, you know, they have processes and systems in place to deal with this. Um, they've got uh, contractors around the province, and there it's not just these sites. There's many other sites that uh, that have occurred, you know, sort of across the province with this uh, this rain, and they're being dealt with right now. They, as I said, they've got systems and processes in place for contractors to immediately start work. Uh, so there's really no holdback. They can get going on things really quickly um, and then do it safely, and then they evaluate that. So uh, I would say they know that. I, being involved and in, uh, working alongside the ministry and being as a highway maintenance contractor, I know the first and foremost is to get make sure it's safe, then start to restore access as quickly as possible, whether that means going in on some of the alternate routes and enhancing them somewhat to handle that additional traffic, uh, yeah. do some temporary fixes. There's a number of things that are, can occur, and rest assured, the ministry is on top of that. Let's go to Blake on the line, calling in the West End. Hey, Blake. Um, uh, this may seem like a dumb question, but would it be possible to take the crew that's um, building the Batella Bridge? I know that bridge is rickety and needs to be replaced, but would it be not be okay to move that crew over to Coquihalla Highway or where, where it's needed more? Kelly Scott. 
Uh, no dumb questions. Um, yeah. I, would, I wouldn't take them off of that bridge, but we do have members that are working up on Site C. Uh, the majority of the earth-moving pro- uh, section of that job is over. They have equipment and operators available and low bids available as needed by Ministry of Transportation. We also have the pipeline construction has been shut down in the canyon. Uh, that contractor has and has have been putting their equipment and operators to work uh, alleviating the emergency situation in the valley and in the canyon as well. So we do have contractors available, ready uh, and able to work. We're also in that slowing down time of our major projects. Winter is upon us. Let's go to Dennis on the line in the West uh, uh, West Vancouver. Hi, Dennis. Uh, yeah, I've been driving. I, I reside in Chilliwack in West Van. I can't, I can't believe at this point how casual we've been with Highway Number 1. It's been a lake for 100 years. And now since Monday, I drove it Monday, and it was water level. And now it's been almost a week, and I, I'm not sure what they've done so far to fix anything. I, I really don't know. Do you, have, do you have any thoughts on that, uh, Joe or Kelly? Well, I guess my thoughts on that one are the first thing you have to do is you have to get the uh, the water out, and they've been working at that, uh, certainly, as, as you can see, trying to protect the, the pumping stations. Um, but uh, you've, uh, on some, a situation like that where you've got a lake you don't have, you've got to find a way to... Uh, find out where the water is coming from and somehow try to uh, to deal with it. And that may be, uh, as I said, dealing with the pumping stations. Maybe if there's been breaches in the dikes, they'll try and replace the... Uh, right. So Yeah, yeah, there have been breaches in the dike, and we, we heard from the mayor yesterday that job one, uh, highest priority, is to build a, a levee uh, in order to keep more of, more of the water out. Kelly, we got 30 seconds here if you want to comment. Yeah, no comment on that. My only comment is that uh, three months ago, we had the heat dome here. We had forest fires here. Uh, The world's changed, and uh, our government and our Ministry of Transportation is changing with it to develop our infrastructure to handle this going forward. So the challenges are there, but uh, we've done this before. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Four. All right, welcome back to the show. As a caller on the open line said earlier, there are so many people who are suffering through this crisis right now. And we've talked a lot on the show about the towns and communities that have been affected the most. So we've talked a lot about Merritt and Princeton and some of the brutal and terrible flooding that's occurred in those towns. Of course, we've talked about uh, Abbotsford and the flooded out regions in that city. We've talked about the people stranded in hope. Uh, another community that we haven't talked about as much, and I think we should right now, and that is uh, the city of Chilliwack, which is also going through a lot of trouble and challenges here as they're as they're cut off by uh, landslides. Let's check in now with Barry Penner, uh, the former Attorney General, a uh, longtime MLA there in the city of Surrey, and, and the city of Chilliwack, I should say, and a Chilliwack resident. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Barry, thank you for coming on. You're welcome, Mike. Good morning. What's it like in Chilliwack these days? Well, today it looks like a lovely day. The sun is out. We got blue sky. Thank heavens. Uh, things are drying a bit, uh, but we've really become an island since Monday, um, oh. and uh, we've been cut off, unable to go west uh, due to the flooding on the Sumas Prairie and covering up uh, Highway One. It's been 
inaccessible, as have the side roads. Uh, and to the east, of course, we've had mudslides east of Bridal Falls between Chilliwack and Hope on Highway 1. And then, of course, there's been the major slides on Highway 7 on the north side of the highway. So we can't, can't go east, can't go west. Right. And so actually, for a period of time, we couldn't go south. There were mudslides impacting uh, the route to Cultus Lake. Uh, so even just going a short distance to the south was impassable, as well as going up the Chilliwack River Valley so, uh, and out towards Yarrow. So we've uh, really been limited in terms of our, uh, our mobility. Now, the main part of the community has not been directly impacted by flooding. There's been some mudslides on hills where houses have been built and so on. So there'll be some damage assessment there. I know there's been some property damage for sure. Um, but overall, we haven't been uh, submerged in the main part of the town. Yeah, and it's so difficult, though, especially for people, let's say, if they have to travel for medical purposes. I mean, I was reading today about people who need daily dialysis treatment. Uh, there have been efforts made to airlift people out of Chilliwack in order to get medical care. So, I mean, super, super difficult situation. What is it like on the ground in um, on the grocery stores and things like that? Are you seeing any empty shelves in stores? Uh, the shelves started to empty out actually as early as Tuesday morning. Uh, that mostly had to do with, I think, people uh, doing a bit of panic shopping. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, as of Monday, trucks were not able to get here with uh, to resupply. We've had some supplies now able to get over now that Highway 7 west of Agassiz has been reopened to one-lane alternating traffic on Mount Woodside, which is often a trouble area uh, on the north side of the Fraser River here. Uh, But we're able to get some trucks through, but I'm told that they're smaller vehicles. They aren't tandem trailers. They're smaller trucks that are able to come through. Uh, I visited a grocery store last night, was able to get some milk finally uh, for my young kids. Um, so that's, that's positive, but yes, the shelves are looking pretty bare. And, uh, I looked around downtown Chilliwack last night, trying to get some gasoline and was unable to, uh, almost all the gas stations, Chevron, Shell, um, Petrocan, Esso, uh, were closed or just out of gas. Diesel was available, uh, but uh, not gasoline in the main part of Chilliwack. Yeah, this is this is a really uh, worrisome part of it as well, with the Trans Mountain pipeline uh, continuing to be shut down. And the latest statement from Trans Mountain is they're assessing the condition of the pipeline. They need to get some people on the ground uh, to do a close and on the ground inspection of the pipe. Um, And that's difficult to get access to some of these areas where there's been slides. So there's no clear indication of, of when the pipeline will start operating again. They do say they have a plan to start the start pumping fuel through that pipe again but we, we don't know for sure and uh that's worrisome for people like you know are, are you are there ga- so are most gas stations do any gas is there any gas available or are all the gas stations shut down or what's the i was there? able to find gasoline in vetter crossing last night to my yeah. surprise uh so it's a bit hit and miss and i've been noticing facebook posts and twitter reports when gasoline uh, does arrive at a service station uh, then uh, word gets around and people quickly converge as they were at the service station I found last night in Valley yeah. Crossing, which is the south part of Chilliwack. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing more of that. Speaking to Barry Penner uh, in Chilliwack and in the, in the conditions uh, there, Chilliwack, of course, is a former Canadian Forces base, right? You meant that, that would, would have been handy to have a CFB Chilliwack there. Well, yes, it's uh, 
it's actually very painful to listen to the dialogue about how we're now celebrating the arrival of some military personnel, maybe 100, arriving in Abbotsford uh, yesterday or today. Uh, if you just cast your mind back, we actually were the location for uh, the Canadian military uh, engineering uh, component. Uh, the one engineer combat regiment was based at Canadian Forces Base Chilliwack, which happens to be where I, I live currently at what's now called Garrison Crossing. Uh, that military base was closed by the federal government in 1997. It, it closed permanently. And uh, we lost uh, an incredible resource of uh, trained combat engineers who specialize in building uh, bridges and uh, earthen structures during difficult conditions, exactly what we're experiencing now. And they had a lot of heavy equipment based here uh, at the former military base. So uh, that's been relocated to Edmonton, Alberta. And now we're awaiting the arrival of the, that personnel. It wouldn't be a total answer to the incredible carnage we're seeing. But when I hear the mayor of Abbotsford explaining the need to fill the gap in the broken dikes, um, that's exactly the kind of work that these combat engineers could have been doing for us already if they had been here. If we still had a military base on the lower mainland uh, with trained personnel uh, who do exactly that type of thing. Yeah, I know. I've had I've had several listeners uh, point that out to me this week. Speaking to Barry Penner in Chilliwack, what is it? What is it like when you speak to your neighbors, your friends in town? Are, are people sort of going along to get along here, or, the, or is anyone kind of losing their patience? Is there any criticism of of the of the flood or uh, emergency response, or are people realizing that you know th- this is an unprecedented situation and people are being patient? What are you finding? Uh, there's a range of views. Um, yeah. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, I, I think people are feeling concerned. Certainly, uh, there's some criticism of their neighbors when they see the store shelves empty out right away. But it's human nature. You're going to try and uh, provide for your family uh, when if you have the opportunity. So that's what's been happening. And unfortunately, our supplies have been cut off. And and thankfully, now Highway Seven is open to alternating traffic. But that is a longer and more arduous route. Um, so it is more difficult to get supplies here, but they are starting to come through. Yeah. Um, I, I think just looking forward, it's something I'd like to identify here. This is not the first time we've seen Sumas Prairie flooded as a result of a breach in the Nooksack River. In fact, a, a, a young MLA in about 1997 or 1998 uh, went down to Nooksack on the banks of the river, along with uh, a couple of Abbotsford MLAs, John Van Dong and Mike DeYoung, to highlight the risk of the inadequately diked Nooksack River and how that posed a risk to the Fraser Valley, which at the time there wasn't a high level of awareness of that. Um, and fast forward, and we've, we've seen this really dramatic impact. And uh, so we've had this flooding in 1990. We've had other episodes where the Nooksack jumped its banks, flowed through the town of Sumas and into Canada. Um, of course, Sumas, Washington, is on the U.S. side of the border, and I feel badly for those folks. But uh, this is not the first time the Nooksack has had a direct impact on Canada. So we have a cross-border issue here. It is a matter, I think, de- deserving attention of our provincial government needs to sit down uh, for a serious conversation with the folks in Washington State. Our federal government may have a role here, too, through the International Joint Commission, which is set up especially to deal, particularly to deal with, transboundary water issues established in a treaty in 1909 
But my preference would be rather than wait for the IJC process, which can be cumbersome, I think direct provincial to state discussions are needed on an urgent basis. And what might be necessary is, is the hard look at building a berm on the Canadian side of the border along the 49th parallel, uh, just north of Sumas, to keep the water on the U.S. side of the border if we're not going to see adequate action taken in Washington State to keep the Nooksack in its banks, then I think Canada and British Columbia needs to protect itself from that threat by building a berm along the 49th parallel at Sumas. Okay, that's an intriguing thought and one that uh, bears some investigation for sure. Barry Penner, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it a lot. You're very welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the federal response now to the disasters in British Columbia. My guest is Brad Viss, Conservative MP, Mission Matsqui, Fraser Canyon. Brad, it's good to have you on again. Thanks for doing it. Hey, Brad, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Brad, Thanks thank for you. having me on again. Thanks for coming on. The last time we had you on was for a different disaster and the wildfires. And now here we go again. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, your, your thoughts on the situation in British Columbia right now, and especially in uh, the constituency that you represent? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's been a worst case scenario. Uh, as everyone knows, every, every major roadway, many of which run through my riding, the 99, the number one through the canyon, uh, have all been shut down. Search and rescue, um, the military was called in. Uh, there was a live loss in my riding, and uh, I believe some search and rescue is still ongoing in the northern part. Uh, down in the southern part of the riding and into the Abbotsford riding, of course, there's Sumas Prairie. And really, um, you know, all of us British Columbians been in the public school system. We remember those talks about a major earthquake and the devastating impacts it would have. Yeah. Well, we're kind of living that right now without an earthquake, except it was torrential rain. Uh, so our province has a lot to do to rebuild and it's not going to be an easy process. Um, but right now we got to focus on the immediate challenges and that's why the military was called in and flew into the Abbotsford airport last night, which I'm very thankful for and something every MP and the government all agreed to do as soon as possible. Um, so they're working on, um, fixing, uh, um, on a levy to, uh, account for the uh, breaches in the dike system. Hey, uh, Brad, let me, on that point, let me play a clip here for you from, from General Wayne Eyre, the acting chief of the defense staff on more military on the way to BC. And then get your thoughts on the other side here. We've also got, um, a, a, a convoy that is assembled in Edmonton of approximately 240 personnel. So the rest, the remainder of the immediate response unit. And once we determine, uh, which, um, which road options are the best to get into uh, British Columbia, that convoy will move forward as well. But all of this will be determined in conjunction in discussions with the uh, local authorities. Are, are, you, are you satisfied, Brad Viss, with the, the, the uh, level of federal response to date? Well, I think, I think it raises a bigger question about why we don't have a military base in British Columbia. Yeah. Um, we used to have CFB Chilliwack, of course, and everyone knows every major roadway is busted right now. Um, so maybe it's easier for the military to go through the United States to get back to the lower mainland. But that said, the, the military is doing everything that needs to get done right now. And I'm very thankful for that. And I'm very thankful for our, our, our men and women in uniform who are coming to our assistance. Um, 
I have family that have been impacted by this that live on Sumas Prairie that are out of their homes right now, as many other people do. It's, it's a really devastating situation, and the military is there, and they're doing everything in their power to help us, and I'm very pleased about that. Do, do you think that... I want to play a, a short clip of uh, an exchange you had with a reporter in, in Ottawa the other day that kind of went viral online because you had a meeting with other BC MPs with the, the federal minister responsible on the disaster in British Columbia. And as you emerged from this meeting, you had a reporter ask you a question about that conservative senator who was calling for Aaron O'Toole's to, to step aside. And you had quite a pointed response. And let me just play briefly play that and get your thoughts on it. So here it is. Do you support Aaron O'Toole's decision to remove Senator Batters? You know what, the most important question needs to be, why aren't you asking me about Mission Matsby Fraser Canyon and the devastating flooding that's taking place in Chilliwack Hope? This was an exchange that has received a lot of attention the last few days, Brad, because, you know, here we have this incredible disaster unfolding in B.C. You come out of an emergency meeting and they're asking you about this senator. What, what does that say to you, like, are, are some of the reporters there in, in, in the Ottawa Beltway kind of a little out of touch with what's going on out here? Uh, you know what? Sometimes they are. I think um, the Fraser Valley, definitely the Fraser Canyon is not top of mind for many of the press gallery in, in Ottawa. And uh, so I'm coming out of a meeting with Minister Blair. The Liberals and the Conservatives are working together on this, just like yeah. our constituents demand of us. I said in that interview that we're taking a Team Canada approach right. and all those journalists wanted to talk about was um, something that frankly is irrelevant right now. And that, and that hurt because I have my phones ringing off the hook this morning with farmers on Sumas Prairie, people that have known my family for generations, wondering what they're going to do. All of their cows are gone. They don't have livestock. The Port of Metro Vancouver is effectively still shut down. I just got off the phone with Mark Strahl, who's working his tail off for Chilliwack Hope, who's still stranded, by the way. Um, we're not going to have ch- the, the highway open up to Chilliwack until the military and our local officials get this levy built. And they wanted to talk about that. So I'm just going to stay focused, as I know the government is too, on helping British Columbia. And, and frankly, I was on the phone with Minister Sajan last night, they're fully aware. Everyone's cooperating together, and this is what people want, and this is what yeah. we're doing. Brad Viss, Conservative MP, Mission Matsqui, Fraser Canyon, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir.